The only reason I asked about Star Wars is because I heard people talking about it just a few minutes ago, so <laughs> got me thinking about it. All right, so if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2, because we're going to start looking at the second chapter of Colossians this morning. So our text this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And I'll go ahead and read that for us here as we're getting started. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the full riches and full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There's a lot, a lot in those verses, and we're going to try to unpack the things that Paul is talking about. But just to set this in the context again, because it's been now uh, two weeks since we've talked about Colossians, just to remind you, we are currently in the part of Paul's epistle where he is explaining the knowledge of Christ to the Colossians. Because again, I've said this before, I'll say it again, you remember that the church in Colossae, to whom Paul is writing, is a very young church. It is full of young believers who have never met the Apostle Paul. Right? They've never had an apostle there teaching them. It's all information that a guy named Epaphras brought to the Colossians from the church in uh, Ephesus. And so the Colossians are young Christians and Paul is writing this epistle to teach them essentially the basics of Christianity. So in the first part of the epistle here, he's teaching them doctrine essentially. Teaching them doctrine. He's teaching them particularly Christology. That is the doctrine of Jesus. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. His person and work. And you remember at the beginning of the epistle, after the introduction, Paul talks about how Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Talks about how Jesus is the one who holds all things together and all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus and so on. All of these things. Very high teaching about Jesus. And then Paul, in the last couple of weeks that we've been looking at this, moved into more of a practical introduction to Jesus, talking about Jesus' um, uh, work of reconciliation and his work of redemption. And now, Paul is starting to introduce a few new topics. And I sort of put a, a little outline up here on the board for us. This is sort of my outline of these eight verses that we're going to look at today. Because some of the things that Paul wants to teach about Christ are listed here. First of all, he wants to teach that Christ is the foundation for knowledge and wisdom of God. 
Christ is the foundation for genuine knowledge and wisdom. Okay? Secondly, he's going to teach us how to be a Psalm 1 Christian. And we'll look at that. And then thirdly, he's going to warn us about philosophy. And we'll look at that in more detail because I like philosophy. So we're going to talk about it. All right. So we're going to see what Paul has to say about warning us about it, though. All right. So let's get into the text here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here Paul wants to teach us about the foundation for knowledge and wisdom. Here's what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Remember, like I just said a minute ago, Paul has never met the Colossians. And he's emphasizing to them how great a struggle it is and how hard he is working to teach them about Christ, even though he's never seen them before. He's never met them. If you just look like a couple of verses before at the end of chapter 1, say verses 28 and 29, Paul says that revealing the mystery of Christ to them is what his life purpose is, essentially. He's saying, for this, for revealing the mystery of Christ to you, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I think this, this is just a bit of a side note here, this isn't part of his point, but I think this is a good example for us as Christians today when we feel a little bit discouraged about what we're doing for Christ. Because I think sometimes if we are, are tr- struggling and trying to serve Christ in various ways, whether it's through teaching or various church activities or service or those sorts of things, and we feel like we don't see the results, we don't see what's happening as a result of our struggling for Christ. I think we need to remember that Paul here is struggling for Christ and he never sees the results because he's never met these people. He's just writing to them. And as far as I know, and I don't think, I don't think Paul ever went to Colossae even after he wrote this letter. He never went to see the results of this letter. He's simply struggling and working hard to write this doctrinal treatise about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, so that these Colossians will benefit even though Paul will never see it. And I think that's what we need to do too. We need to work hard and struggle for ministry and for Christ, even if we'll never see the results of it ourselves. Now, sometimes we do get to see the results, and that's really fun when God lets us do that. But sometimes the results of us working for Christ are things that we just don't see. And they may be things that don't bear fruit until several generations after us. And so that's just a side point here, but that's what Paul's doing. He's never going to see the results of this. He's just working hard, working hard because this is what he toils for. So that they may be encouraged and knit together in love. And then here's here's why he's doing it again. Uh, This is the second half of verse 2. So that they might reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's what he's revealing to them. Now, look at verse 3. We talked about all that a lot um, last time we were together, but look at verse 3. In whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You got markers? You know, I brought a fresh marker here, so I would be set to go. Thank you. Now we're really set. I can do all kinds of fun stuff. All right, anyway, um, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all right? Now, here's what Paul is saying by that. He's saying, Jesus is the one who is the foundation 
for the knowledge and wisdom of God. Genuine knowledge and wisdom must be based on Christ. Because in him are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and what, what's fascinating here is that when Paul discusses this, he places it in mystery language. You see that? Hidden. The knowledge and wisdom are hidden in Christ. And that's because they have to be revealed. Christ has to be revealed in order for someone to have genuine knowledge and wisdom. God doesn't reveal this to everyone. He reveals it to his people. In Christ is hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which God must reveal. Now, what's interesting here is that as Paul as Paul is setting forth this idea of the fact that the only way someone can have genuine knowledge and wisdom of God, of reality, the world, to have the full understanding of reality in the right way, you have to know Jesus. And, and the reason why Paul is saying this is because he wants to make Jesus the epistemological center of our worldview. And by that, epistemological, it's a very fancy philosophical word. It just means he's the knowledge center. He's the only place where we're going to have genuine knowledge. And everything that we see in the world has to be looked at through the lens of Christ. And he says this, verse 4, he says, I say this. It's going to, now, here's the reason. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is the foundation for wisdom and knowledge? He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say this so no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And what's fascinating is that in the history of thought, you know, as you study, whether it's philosophy or theology or, you know, just history in general or anything, there have been many, many systems of thought presented by various thinkers which have been purposed to make the foundation for the knowledge and wisdom of God something other than Christ. And just to give you some examples of that, where's my marker? There it is. Just to give you some examples of that, I want to outline for you a couple of people who have tried to do this very thing. They have tried to make Christianity centered not on Christ or Christ's word, but they have tried to make Christianity have its foundation in something other than Christ and his word. And, and I want to show you where that leads. First of all, you have a guy by the name of Rene Descartes. How many of you ever heard of Rene Descartes? Couple people, couple all right? Math What's that? Couple math teachers. Yeah, math teachers. Okay, math teachers for sure would hear about Descartes. He was influential in mathematics, but his major contribution to the realm of theoretical thought was not in mathematics so much as it was in philosophy. Okay, hey, here it is: philosophy rearing its ugly head when I'm teaching. It's, it's going to happen, all right? Because I, I like philosophy. So Descartes' major contribution was philosophy, and here's what he wanted to do: right, he wanted to establish a sure foundation for the knowledge and wisdom of God. All right? He wanted to establish a sure foundation for Christianity because uh, Descartes was a Roman Catholic. Right? So he had a generally Christian worldview. He believed that the word of God is the scriptures, you know, that it, it really is um, inspired by God and that it needs to be believed. He was a good Roman Catholic. But he said, you can't just believe the word of Christ just because it's the word of Christ. You can't just believe the Bible because the Bible says something. You need to establish it as the word of God using something else. 
We need a sure foundation other than the word of Christ. We need something else, something that cannot be denied. And so Descartes said, anything that can be doubted must be doubted. Because anything that can be possibly doubted cannot be a foundation for true religion. And so Descartes launched himself into a radical process of systematic doubt. He doubted everything he could possibly doubt. He said, I'm going to doubt everything that I've been told by anybody ever in my whole life. I'm going to doubt all my teachers. I'm going to doubt all the philosophers. I'm going to doubt all the theologians. I'm doubting everybody. And then he said, I'm going to doubt my memories, because my memories could have been implanted by a robot or something. Who knows? So I'm going to doubt my memories. I'm going to doubt my sense perceptions. I can't trust my eyes or my feelings. I can't trust my hands. can't trust anything. And he said, then... Now, I've, I've doubted all that, now I'm going to doubt my own existence. Because how do I know that I exist? And that's where he got to a philosophical foundation. Because he said, if I doubt that I exist, who's doing the doubting? I am. You see that? If I doubt that I exist, I am doubting. Therefore, someone must be doing the doubting. I can't doubt that I'm doubting, because if I doubt that I'm doubting, I'm the one doubting, therefore I am. (laughs) Can you get that? So basically, this is where we get Descartes' famous statement, and you might have heard of this before, I think, therefore I am. You ever heard of that before? Yeah. I think, therefore I am, because thought requires a thinker. And so what Descartes said is, ah, there's the foundation. No one can doubt this. Because if they doubt this, they themselves have to be doubting. So no one can doubt their own existence. We'll start there. That's his starting point. Now, what Descartes was doing here is he was basing all of his thought, that is the foundation for knowledge, he's basing it on a rational conclusion. That is, he's basing it on reason. And so Descartes' foundation is reason. Descartes' foundation is reason. And he thinks that if he starts with this idea, I think, therefore I am, if he starts there and proceeds using reason and logic, he can construct the whole Roman Catholic worldview just with that, and he doesn't need the Bible. So you see, he's basing his whole foundation for the existence and the knowledge of God and for the wisdom of how to live as God's people. He's basing all that on reason. That's his foundation. See, then you got another guy that comes right after Descartes, and his name is Immanuel Kant. You ever heard of Immanuel Kant before? Not really? Man, you need to do some more reading. <laughs> Immanuel Kant, all right, is the most significant philosopher after Aristotle. All of philosophy is categorized as either before Immanuel Kant or after Immanuel Kant. Okay, this guy's really important. And he, by the way, is literally how... Um, the scientific world today functions. His thought has shaped how science works today. And for Immanuel Kant, what he said is he said, Descartes, sorry, you can't use reason to prove God's existence because reason only applies to the physical world. You don't know if reason applies to the spiritual world, to the supernatural world. So if God exists, 
Well, he might, but you can't prove it with reason. Reason doesn't work. And so what Kant said is, even though you can't prove God's existence using reason, we have to assume that he exists. We have to assume that God exists because if he doesn't exist, then human life can't function because everyone would be free to act in any way they want. There would be no morality. And so Kant says, in order to have God's existence, you have to base it upon the fact that we need a God who will judge evil. Therefore, it will keep people moral. You see that? And so Kant, for his foundation for the knowledge of God, is going to be morality. Descartes, he said, you can prove God's existence using philosophy, using reason. Kant says, no, you can't prove God's existence using reason, but we must assume that he exists in order to have morality in this world. Otherwise, people will just do whatever they want if they don't think a divine judge is going to judge them for sinning at some point. Okay, so you understand that? So Kant's, Kant's foundation for the knowledge of God is morality. And now a final guy. Final guy, you'll see where we're going with this is a guy by the name of Schleiermacher. And I really like Schleiermacher because it's fun to pronounce his name. All right? Um, because it sounds like you're trying to spit on the sidewalk or something when you say it, Schleiermacher. You know? But anyway, Schleiermacher was a German Lutheran philosopher and theologian. Okay? And what Schleiermacher does is he says, hey, Descartes, you're wrong. You can't prove God using reason. Uh, Kant, you can't prove God because you're just assuming he exists. That's not an argument for proving that God exists, just assuming he's there just because of the consequences. So Schleiermacher says, no, oops, sorry, I spelled that wrong. L goes here. Um, so Schleiermacher comes along and he says, hey, wait a second. You can't know God through reason. And you can't just assume he's there based on morality. And so what Schleiermacher does is he bases his foundation for the knowledge of God on what he called feeling. And for Schleiermacher, when he talked about feeling, he didn't really mean like you know emotions or, or passions or something. But what he meant by feeling was the kind of feeling that we all can identify with. When we walk outside on a night you know, at night sometime. And we look up at the sky, on a clear sky, and we look at the stars. I think we've probably all had this experience, right? When we walk outside and we look up at the stars in a night sky, we're just like, wow, I am tiny. I am so insignificant. This world is so huge. I am so dependent on something outside of me. That's what Schleiermacher meant by feeling. He meant that the, the way we know God is not by reason, it's not by assuming he's there, but it's by feeling our dependence upon him. It's a feeling, it's a sensation. It's our, our ability to sense that we are dependent on God. And you can see where this went with liberal theology that says, we don't need doctrine. We don't need orthodoxy. Who cares whether Jesus is God or not? What we really need is just to, to know that God exists and to know that we can have a sense of him. We can experience him. 
And so for Schleiermacher, when he started talking about Jesus, he said, yeah, Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was a real person in history, but he wasn't God. Jesus was just this, the first guy to have a perfect sense of his dependence on God. And so Jesus then becomes an example for us to follow. Because we too can have a perfect God consciousness like Jesus. And so we just need to seek to be like Jesus. He's our example. That's Schleiermacher. Feeling. Christianity is all about feeling and experiencing God. You can see how Schleiermacher was very influential on the whole charismatic and Pentecostal movement where their emphasis is all about feeling and experiencing God rather than believing truths about God. So there's a great difference there. Now, why do I bring all this up? Now, it's because Paul warned us about Descartes, Kant, and Schleiermacher, and many others. Not specifically, but generally. Because, well, these guys over here, they want to have the foundation of the knowledge and wisdom of God as reason, or morality, or feeling, or whatever else we could throw in there from other thinkers. Paul, getting back to Colossians here, wants our knowledge and wisdom of God to be founded upon the person of Jesus as revealed by God in his word. And so what that means then is that when we want to understand what is true, when we want to have genuine knowledge of the world, when we want to have genuine wisdom of how to apply our knowledge, when we want to know things with certainty, we base that knowledge not on anything else other than Christ and his word. That's what Paul's telling the Colossians. Because if you don't base it on Christ, if you don't base your knowledge on Christ and his word, guess what? You're going to be led astray by plausible arguments. Because the foundation is taken out. And now over here you get Schleiermacher saying, oh yeah, you don't need to believe the word of Christ. Don't believe the Bible. You need to believe this feeling that you have. Or Descartes, you don't need to believe the Bible. Just believe reason. Whatever is reasonable is true. Or fill in the blank with whatever other foundation we want to add. Maybe, maybe science today becomes the foundation for knowledge. Well, this is scientific fact, therefore it's true. Never mind the fact that, that philosophically there's no such thing as a scientific fact. <coughs> so we, Paul says, need to base our knowledge and wisdom of God on Christ and his word. And then Paul adds in verse 5, uh, 4, so the reason for this, Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so what Paul is doing here to the Colossians is he's saying, hey, I recognize, guys, you're doing this. This is just a reminder. You, all, you have your foundation in the knowledge of Christ. You have that. And because you have that, because of your firmness of faith in Christ and your good works, your, your good order, that is your ordering of your life in accordance with the teachings of the word of God, I can see that you are like this. So we're one in spirit, meaning we're of the same mind. We both have the same foundation. And so that is Paul's section there as he deals with Christ as the foundation for the knowledge and wisdom of God. And we have to have that. We have to have Christ at the center of all of our knowledge and him and his word as the basis upon which we judge all other truth claims. And we'll talk about that more in, uh, when we get to verse 8 here and, and wrap up that discussion. But Paul here, in the middle of this discussion of 
knowledge and plausible arguments, and what he'll then talk about is philosophy in a couple of verses, sort of just throws in verses 6 and 7. He throws in verses 6 and 7 to kind of back up what he's saying in verse 5. And he says in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As I, as I read uh, verses 6 and 7 in preparing for this, I was struck by the language that Paul is using and how that language is uh, reminiscent of Psalm chapter 1. And so we move here now to our second section here, which is being a Psalm 1 Christian. Now, I don't know how familiar y'all are with Psalm 1, but it goes something like this. You know, verse 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree, firmly rooted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Now Paul's language here in verses 6 and 7, when he talks about walking in Jesus, and being rooted and grown up or built up in Jesus, established, rooted in the faith, if you look at the Greek, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. These, these languages here, or these words that Paul is using, the language is reminiscent of Psalm 1. He's kind of got that psalm on the back of his mind, I think. And what he's essentially saying here in verses 6 and 7 is that the Colossians received Christ in faith, and just as they received him in faith, so they need to manifest him in their life. Because they need to bear fruit. Rooted in him. There's that foundation showing up again. Rooted and built up in Christ. Because Christ is their foundation. Christ is their cornerstone for understanding what is real and what is true. Christ and Christ's word is their foundation for understanding what is real and what is true. And so when they embrace that Christ, that foundation for truth, they are able to construct for themselves and to be built up and to be rooted and to be established in that faith so that as they grow as Christians, their lives begin to reflect and manifest the person of Jesus. And isn't that exactly what, what the gospel is, right? When we accept the gospel in faith, when we accept that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that he died to pay for our sins and to give us his righteousness so we can be justified before God, and that the result of that gospel is to bear fruit and to manifest Christ's character in ourselves as we're sanctified by the Spirit. That's the gospel right there. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the whole message of Scripture. And Paul's given us that here in a nutshell, using language from Psalm 1 and rooting that in this. It's a, I, I just think it's really, really well crafted here what Paul is doing. And then we get to verse 8 here. And verse 8 is Paul, again, wanting to give his readers a warning. And it's a warning that's similar to what he gave in verse 4. Because in verse 4 he said, I'm telling you that Christ is the foundation for knowledge and wisdom of God so that you're not deceived by plausible arguments. And then he comes back in verse 8 and, he gonna, and he's going to give us some examples of what these plausible arguments look like. 
What are these plausible arguments? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, by elemental spirits there, in verse 8, Paul, I think, has in mind demons, demonic powers, Satan's followers. Um, There's some other options, but I think that's the best one. He's talking about demons. Now, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. There have been a number of Christians and uh, theological traditions who have taken, say, a verse like this, or other verses in Scripture that sound similar, and have constructed an idea that Christians need to be biblicists. I don't know if you know what a biblicist is, but a biblicist means that the only place we can ever find anything true is in the Bible. That is, we can never discover anything that's really true outside of the Bible. And particularly, what they really want to say is that philosophy as a science, philosophy as the study of reality and the things that are out there, you know, and trying to make sense of the world, that philosophy itself is a kind of tool of the devil. Philosophy is a bad thing, intrinsically. And that Christians should never, ever be a part of philosophy, but should only have the nose in the Bible. All right. Now, on the one hand, there, there's a point there, right? Because we do want to make the Bible the, the absolute center of our worldview. We want to make Christ and his word the foundation for our knowledge and wisdom. That's a good thing. But the question is here, is Paul saying that all philosophy is bad... Or is he saying that some philosophy is bad, that we need to be careful? What's his point here? And and the reason why this is important is because when we talk about... Let me get rid of this here. When we talk about philosophy, what we need to understand is when we think about philosophy in our modern English, we think of abstract thinking. When we think of philosophy, when I say this word, you're probably thinking about like you know, metaphysics and Aristotle and Plato and just way abstract sort of things that, um, you know, are out there in some ivory tower somewhere that just don't really matter for us today as human beings in the normal living conditions. Now, that's certainly true. There's a lot of philosophy that's like that. Just out in the ivory tower, no one cares. It's kind of so technical that it just doesn't matter. But philosophy itself is not just abstract ideas. Because you can put things under philosophy. In fact, you can literally put everything that is not in Scripture under the category of philosophy. And so what I mean by that is this. (coughs) Science falls under the category of philosophy. Science, geology, meteorology, all those sorts of things. That's natural philosophy. The philosophy of nature. Studying the world around us. That's philosophy. You can put history under here history, the study of of events that have happened in the past. That's philosophy. All these things fall under the category here. Art, music, math. Um, You can put grammar under here. 
the philosophy of language, right? All of these things are philosophy. These are all studies of the world that God made and figuring out the logic of how it all works and how it all fits together. That's philosophy. Now, that's the kind of philosophy that Paul has in mind here. That's what philosophy meant in that day. And that's still what it means today with a proper understanding. It's not just abstract ideas that philosophers are arguing about. It's every kind of study that's out there. And so the question is, is Paul saying that Christians should not be involved in these things? Or is he saying Christians should not be involved in, in bad ideas about these things? Well, let's just look at the grammar here for a second in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And then you've got three, if you're looking at the verse, you've got three statements, that's, or three clauses that start with according to. You see that? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to demons, and not according to Christ. Those according statements apply to both empty deceit and to philosophy. And so what Paul is saying is this, don't be taken in by philosophy that is according to human tradition, or that is according to demons, and that is not according to Christ. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, don't be taken in by bad philosophy. Don't be taken in by bad philosophy. And there's two sort of assumptions built into this verse. One is that we know what the bad philosophy is. And second, we know what the good philosophy is. So we got to know the Christian view of these studies. So we're not taken in by bad worldviews. Because I erased it, but... The, the thinking of Descartes, Kant, and Schleiermacher, all three of those guys together has created the modern world that we live in right now. And Jordan, Jordan gets annoyed when we're watching movies um, because anytime we're watching movies, I'm always analyzing them for the worldview that the movie's trying to present. <laughs> it's, that's, that's my problem as a philosopher, theologian, wannabe, is that I'm always thinking too carefully about things, I think. It's hard to enjoy a movie when I see, oh, that's Nietzsche. Nietzsche said that. They're pre presenting the, the Nietzschean postmodern worldview in that movie or something. So it's, it's very funny. But you know what? It does protect me from buying into bad messages in the movie that someone else might buy into because I'm able to detect, ooh, that worldview that that movie just put out was, that was the Schleiermacher worldview. Or that was pure Kant that that character just said. Or something like that. So, but anyway, um, just as we sort of wrap up here, I want to give you a, I want to present to you what Paul is talking about here and give us sort of a good understanding of the relationship between scripture and philosophy. Okay, because we said, we've just seen now, as we've looked at the grammar of the verse very quickly, Paul is not saying philosophy, that is all these things are bad and that scripture is good. Rather, he's saying, Scripture is always good, and this stuff can be good just as long as it's not according to human tradition or according to demons or against Christ in some other way. So how does philosophy and theology sort of fit together? How does philosophy and Scripture sort of fit together? Have you guys ever heard of... I keep putting up names here, but have you guys ever heard of a guy by the name of Thomas Aquinas? Heard of him before? I hope you have heard of him, because Thomas Aquinas, next to Augustine, is the most important theologian in Christian history. So important is this guy. He was um, alive from 1225 to 12-something. He lived like 50-something years. So Thomas Aquinas, all right, and Thomas Aquinas proposed 
I think, a wonderful relationship between philosophy and scripture. Right? And he started out by saying, all truth is God's truth. And I think we can all agree with that, right? If anything is true, it's God's truth. If anything is true, it's God's truth. Anything is true, then, it, then it's true because God has decided that it should be. And so what Aquinas did was he proposed basically two spheres. Two spheres like so. And what he said is that on the first sphere, over here, you've got something like scripture. And then on this side, you've got philosophy. That's what this circle is. Philosophy, and this one is scripture. And by philosophy, we're talking all of these different studies here. And what Aquinas said is this. He's like, hey, scripture? Scripture is always true. Scripture is always true. You can trust everything that is in the Bible because it is the word of Christ and it has been inspired. All right? You can trust the scripture. And there are so many things in the scripture that you can only learn in the scripture. For example, the Trinity. Can you learn the Trinity by studying geology? No, can't. I mean, you could try. It's not going to work. You can't learn the Trinity by studying geology. There's no way anyone would come up with that, that God is one in essence and three in person and all that. You can't learn the Trinity by studying philosophy. No amount of reason is going to help you deduce that without being told that God is a trinity. And the only way you can be told that is if God reveals it in special revelation, which is what the Bible is, right? If God reveals it in his word. That's how we know the trinity. We'd never know salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, except by the word of God telling us that. We can't deduce that with reason or, or nature. So there's a lot of things in Scripture that we're told that we would not know in any other way, have to be told by God directly in his word. But then, you've got over here this other category called philosophy, which is science, history, art, etc. And there's a lot of things in philosophy that you can only find out in this kind of philosophy that you'd never find out in scripture. Say, for example, the, the human circulatory system in the body. You can only find that out through the philosophy of science. There's no verse in the Bible I can go to where it tells me how, the, how blood works and how it flows through the body and delivers oxygen here and does this over here and that sort of thing. There's no verse in the Bible that'll tell me that. I'll never know that apart from philosophy of science. Likewise, I would never know how, um, um, how to fix a, a broken transmission on a car. Not that I would ever attempt to do that. But if I were a mechanic, I would never be able to turn in scripture to figure out how it would fix a transmission on a car. No, I need a philosophy for that. I need philosophy of engines, or I mean, whatever you want to put up there. So there's lots of things in philosophy that, sh that are true. It really is true that I can learn how to fix a transmission using philosophy, or that I can learn how the circulatory system works using the philosophy of science. But I'll never know that in scripture. So... Philosophy can present truths that are not outside that are outside of Scripture, but yet that aren't contradictory to it. You see that? And then Aquinas said there's also this middle ground where there are truths that are revealed both in Scripture and in philosophy, 
and they fall in this category. And one, one thing we could put in there is, say, the existence of God. From Aquinas' perspective, you can prove the existence of God without the Scripture. You don't need the Scripture to do that, per se. Because you can use reason, or you can use the idea of, like, where did everything come from? Just purely using philosophy and reason prove the existence of God. Now, you can, there's a lot of stuff in Christianity you can't prove that doesn't fall in there. You can't prove the Incarnation, that Jesus became man. You need scripture for that. You can't prove the atonement on the cross using reason. You only get that from scripture. But there are some things you can get from both philosophy and scripture. Does that make sense? Some things you can get from both. Now, here's what Aquinas says. He says, All truth is God's truth. And God has given every human being a mind and senses, that is eyesight, touch, those sorts of things, so that we can go into his world and carefully reason and do research and study all that he has made so we can find out the order of creation. We can figure out how it works. We'll never be able to figure out everything, but we can try because God has made us that way. And so we can discover legitimate truth through philosophy, through these things. But anything that we think we've discovered over here in the realm of philosophy always and in every way needs to be subject to what we find in Scripture. Because Scripture is the ultimate standard. And the problem comes when you take Scripture and you place it under philosophy. And you start saying philosophy gets to dictate what's in Scripture rather than Scripture dictating what's in philosophy. And see, when it comes to Descartes and Immanuel Kant and Schleiermacher and so many other thinkers, what they did is they said, no, Scripture is not our foundation. Scripture is not the thing which we hold up all of our conclusions to. No, no, no. We have our conclusions. We have our philosophy. And then we take Scripture and we hold it up to see if it matches our philosophy. And if it doesn't match our, our philosophy, well, then we throw Scripture out. You see that flip that happened. And Aquinas says, no, Scripture's at the top. This one is the priority. This one is secondary. Anything we discover in science must match what the Scripture says. Anything we discover in history much match, must match what the Scripture says. And if it doesn't, what it shows is we have done bad philosophy. We have done philosophy, whether of science or of history or of something else, that is either according to human tradition or according to demons or in some other way contrary to Christ. And that is Paul's warning here. That when we study the world in any of these fields and other ones we could put up here, we must always hold those conclusions up to Scripture because we cannot replace the foundation for our knowledge and wisdom of God with anything other than Christ. And so as we close here, let that be a good warning to all of us. Right? As we are in the world, as we are studying philosophy in all kinds of ways, we don't even realize that you could put economics and politics under here. Those are philosophies too. As we study all those things, we need to make sure that they are always in accordance with Christ and his word. And if they're not, it shows us we have misunderstood something. We've gotten something wrong. All right, let's pray. 
Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word here. We thank you for the teaching of uh, the Apostle Paul and how he warns us about vain philosophy. Lord, Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us here in this text and in many other places in your word a, a, a grid for how we can study the world that you have made and come to conclusions about it. Lord, we thank you you've given us a mind to do that, that you've given us brains, that you've given us senses that we can use to do research and to draw conclusions about your world. But Lord, we just pray that when we draw conclusions and, and the conclusion doesn't match your word, Lord, pray that you would show us our error. Show us where our philosophy has been not according to Christ, but has been according to something else. Lord, draw us toward yourself today. Pray, Lord, that this, this great truth would give us assurance and stability as we stand on your word, as we stand on the word of Christ, so that we would be more thankful for this word and that we would trust it more and that we would continue to hold fast to it and that we would be thankful that out of your grace you gave it to us and that in this word you revealed to us the gospel. I pray that that gospel will be presented clearly today as we worship and prepare us now to hear the preaching of your word from Pastor Adam. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.